There are two quotes that are scribbled on post-it notes that I see every day. They're on my desk. The first is a quote from Faulkner, and it says, The past is never dead. It's not even past. And the second says, California is America, only sooner. That one's by a professor named Manuel Pastor at the University of Southern California. The previous five episodes of this show have revealed how the past is not even past. That's really where my thinking has been. I've tried to choose stories that really resonate with issues today, whether it's the story of the Bracero program and current struggles over immigration policy, or the history of the invention of the mechanical tomato harvester, which launched today's California food movement. This episode is the first in a series which will explore that second quote, California is America, only sooner. We're calling the series Digging Deep, Conversations with Food Movement Leaders about the History of Farming. And I'm going to be talking with people who are working to shift farming right now, working to bring California farming into the future. And we'll be talking about how their understanding of the past and how what they learned from Calag Root stories has shifted their thinking about their work. I'm Ildi Carlisle Cummins, and this is Calag Roots podcast number six. That means we've made five other Calag Roots podcasts that take some deep dives into the history of farming in California. You can check them out at www.agroots.org. Particularly relevant to today's podcast is the last one we released, number five, Borderlands of the San Joaquin Valley. I'll keep on producing that style of podcast, releasing them here, because there are so, so many more histories to unearth. But today's episode is going to be different in a good way. And I'm hoping that these two different kinds of podcasts, the history podcasts and the interview podcasts, are going to be in constant conversation with each other. And I'm hoping that you'll tune into both and that each episode will be more meaningful that way. Okay, let's dive into our first Digging Deep interview podcast. Hey, Mai. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you great. How are you doing? I just want to pop back in here to say I could hear Mai great, for Skype anyway. The audio didn't record that well, though. Uh, lesson learned for next time. Please bear with it. Well, um, do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah. So my name is Nguyen Pan Mai, or Mai Nguyen, and I'm a farmer and farmer organizer. Let me get your geography right. So you live in San Diego, but you farm also in Sonoma. That's correct. Okay. How are you able to to be a, a farmer on that land at such a distance? The majority of my crop in Sonoma, or the entirety of my crop in Sonoma, they're grains, mm-hmm. like wheat and barley. Um, and so that is a pretty hands-off crop okay. for large portions of the year and then there are times where it's much more intensive and so um you know during the times of cultivation and seeding and then later of harvesting those are the primary times when I'm when I'm on the farm. Mai is a farmer but she also really believes in farmer-led political organizing. She did this first with the Asian American Farmers Alliance which she helped to found and then with the Farmer Justice Collaborative, which passed a groundbreaking Farmer Equity Act in California in 2017. And now she works with the National Young Farmers Coalition. Most of my work has been grassroots in the literal sense, and then also in terms of the organizing that I've done, like being the child of refugees. Um, you know, we've, we've managed to get by with the tools that, was, that were immediately around us 
and by cooperating and collaborating with others so that we um, could share even more of our tools, right, to, to meet basic needs. Um, but we, we don't, we haven't had a lot of political power. And so it wasn't a realm that I was familiar with, but I started to understand the value and importance of making political shifts that help us um, institutionalize the um, on the ground, day-to-day -day social movement building that we were doing. With the Farmer Justice Collaborative, uh, it was my introduction to really understanding how a bill is proposed. Um, how do you work with um, you know, multi-ethnic, multi-sector group of people uh, towards one vision? And that was really powerful and also um, eye-opening in terms of how, um, how deeply complicated the political system is and how so many people um, are sort of made blind to it. And so I knew that it was important to, to work with more people to be engaged in policymaking um, so that we are actually represented in politics and shaping this container that you know holds all of us. With the change of administration, um, some you know racist rhetoric was sort of highlighted. And I've heard somebody describe the Trump administration as that I thought this was a good description as like, the smoke in like a spy movie that reveals the laser lines that are like structural racism in our society, right? It's it's always been there, but now there's like this smoke over everything and we can see it really plainly. But I don't hear like, I don't hear a lot of conversation about how the blatant racism of the new administration affects farming communities. Can you talk a little bit more about what that conversation was like and continues to be like. We don't really talk about the impacts of the new administration on farmers and rural America. And, um, and that was, that was like the hardest part I think about, um, the change in administration and talking to friends in cities is because there's a very quick demonization of rural America as the cause for Trump getting elected. Mm -hmm. yep. And, and that conflation is coupled with um, an assumption that rural America is white America. Yep. And so when we when people think that, then it ignores all of the people of color in rural America. Um, and and it's even before that, it's just very difficult for people to let go of stereotypes of the rural U.S rural landscape, who's there, and why we should care about it. Um, and, you know, I, I think even though now most people, you know, the majority of people live in cities, as we see from global statistics or U.S. statistics, it's like we are all made of rural America, mm -hmm. right? Most of the food that we eat, <laughs> the water that we drink came from rural America, and so we need to care about the people who are stewards of the land out there and um, are growing our food you know, in, in those spaces. There's also just a dehumanizing of, of who's there. And so it was just, I just saw that pattern 
emerging again and kind of being reinforced in, in different ways. Um, oh, the impact of that is just like so complicated, right? It's like if you're, you're hiding, um, like how does that affect your ability to go to work or your trust with your coworkers and then your job stability or um, just being able to go out and like buy food at what time of day with your kids if you're afraid that your kids will get hurt. The other important piece that like you brought up is that it's not new, right? Like especially with the stories that you captured in um, the previous podcast, the experience of Japanese Americans. Um, and I certainly look to the history of like African Americans in the Southeast. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we, we have a long history of institutionalized racism um, and we've seen how that impacts farmers. Yeah. So you're getting into some of the territory that I was hoping we could have a conversation about, about, um, you know, how the, how we sort of live and walk with the ghosts of the past, right? Like history is here. It has informed our reality. It's built the structures that were living in and confined by and maybe breaking through. Um, but what, like, two things, I guess. Do you think that within sort of food movement or farming, uh, farmer organizing circles, is there a conversation about how history informs our present? And if, if so, what are folks talking about in, in terms of that? The answer is yes. <laughs> Great. We we must look back to measure our progress mm -hmm. and we also must look around us to make progress, mm -hmm. right? And so when we are working with those with us now, we're, we're unearthing our individual and our collective histories that help us understand how we got to where we are. Mm -hmm. um, and so that process of unearthing and especially for people of color you know it's it's a it's a really um just like it's a it's one that requires memory and connection because um it's often not written and so we need to learn from each other from our from our you know elders um we have to look to those around us because there, there isn't, you know, a textbook that we can point to. Um, the political wins are significant because we know how our ancestors were marginalized from politics. But those wins are just kind of a glimpse of the work that was done. Are there particular pieces of the California farming story that you that ha like learning that those histories has been particularly important to you? The stories that stand out to me are primarily the ones of um, multi-ethnic organizing, right? So there's um, the history of the farmers who were in Oxnard uh, who were harvesting beets. So there are Japanese farmers and Mexican farmers farm workers um, and how they collaborated in order to, you know, have to retain their, their jobs. 
Um, so you know, this kind of deeper history where while there's a, a larger structure that tries to mark us as different in order to separate us and pit us against each other, um, the instances where people have found each other, have found connection for a larger goal and work together towards it, like that's what really inspires me. So, you know, we also saw that with um, like the Delano strikes and Filipino workers and Mexican-American workers coming together. Um, you know, it's, it's, we all have common struggles and if we work together, we can actually get so much further. Um, we can really actually achieve, you know, justice, equality of life, um, and dignity. And, you know, that kind of power building, um, through connection, seeing that throughout California history has been really powerful. Yeah. Well, that, to me, that leads us right into a conversation about borderlands because that was part of the point of, coming up with that borderlands of the San Joaquin Valley framing is that, you know, thinking about the incredible layering of cultures in the valley in particular, and um, the ways that people are crossing borders all the time to relate to one another, their neighbors, um, other, you know, other farming groups in the area, and the interesting ways that cultures have intersected. But what do you think about that? Yeah, I think it was um, what struck me about Borderlands as a concept, but also as I heard people's stories, was really the borderland is is a place of crossing. It's a place of mixing, um, and I think that's a stark contrast to the to just saying border, right? So the, a border is almost like a line, mm-hmm. a discrete um, entity, or place and then when you say borderlands it's so much broader and squishy and um, tricky and you don't know when you're in it Um, but that's the reality of what we live right and in the layered um, cultures in a place but also within ourselves right so like I think for me when I I, you know, when I think of the borderlands within myself, you know, as a Vietnamese American who um, tries to grapple with, I don't know, um, I sometimes, like I recently encountered a statement about the Statue of Liberty that said, you know, it, it was a gift from France to symbolize the celebration of independence is actually a celebration of friendship between nations. And so the American part of me is like, oh, that's really cool. Like, (laughs) it's about interconnectedness. But it's also that interconnectedness, particularly between France and America, that perpetuated colonialism in Vietnam and furthered a war that really is the reason why I have any connection to being American and why I'm here in the state. Borderlands was not just the borderlands for others, but it's that space where you encounter yourself um, and and then are able to cross over to make connections with others. 
So um, one of the reasons that we put on Borderlands is because I've been kind of chewing on this question and um, kind of blind, blind spot, I guess I would say, or like a, a place where I wasn't hearing a lot of conversation within the quote unquote California food movement about, um, you know, immigrant innovation in California farming. And I, I, I said it a little bit on, on stage there at Borderlands, but I, I wonder if you would reflect on the the kind of theme that you know it's just critical to push back on this standard story that you hear about California farming that it is this incredible you know uh, breadbasket to the world because of a lot of money and a lot of science and technology and some big mostly white mostly male landowners that have like built this temple to agriculture right and that really like the immigrants have come from all around the world with their own ecological and farming knowledge about how to grow stuff so um do you feel do you agree with me that that's like a critical intervention in food movement conversations that like that that needs to be a part of what we're talking about when we're talking about what what next in California farming? I mean, I think you're right in identifying that what's missing from the conversation is really this understanding of how we've gotten to where we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just um, the, you know, land shaping policies and waterscape, but really who built it. And I think the other part that's missing is how in that erasure of where this knowledge came from and who worked the lands, um, we open ourselves up for this kind of um, capitalizing on those efforts and renaming them as though they're new and then giving credit to people now who are actually a part of like the landed wealthy Euro-American class. Yeah. Um, so I see a lot of Columbusing, as we call it. <laughs> I love that. I haven't heard that. That's amazing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Where it's like someone comes in and they say, oh, I've discovered that if you intercrop some plants, um, and you have developed this system where you, you know, put in some swales and things like that, you know, um, that that's really good for agriculture. And I'm going to take credit for that, even though that's a really old practice mm-hmm. um, and a practice that was suppressed by the ancestors of that person who's now taking credit for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my question really for kind of our society moving forward is, you know, um, is can we be comfortable enough with ourselves and our history that is full of violence and theft and grief and also like joy and diversity? Are we capable of looking back at that and give it an honest appraisal and uplift the the kinds of knowledge and ways of being that have been suppressed through colonialism, um, white supremacy, and racism.
Mm-hmm. That is a powerful question. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how we go about asking that. I mean, I guess this is how we go about asking it. We put it out and see who bites. Do you hear people asking and answering that? Um, I don't really hear a lot of people asking that. I think it's really important for people to to actually look back and say, like, this is really where all of us has come from, that it's not any one person's history. This is our shared history. And that from there we can learn what to do such that we are all included. Thank you so much, Mai. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for reaching out. So that was a taste of what I thought was a pretty great conversation with Mai Nguyen. I was really happy with it and eager to make it into this podcast. And then a couple days after we talked, I was standing in line in the coffee shop and I opened an email from Mai with a beautifully written kind of epilogue to this conversation. I asked if she would record it so I could share it here with you. So we'll end with that. I, like other farmers, have perhaps 40 tries to grow my crops. That's not many, but we have more data points by looking back and looking around us. Scale isn't about one individual using their monoculture of the mind to manage vast acreage. Scale is human history and diversity, the polyculture of many minds working lands in different ways throughout time and at the same time. We must look at our history, at all the tries, all the people, all the frameworks that informed how people shaped our landscape. The people who did the most shaping in America, the workers, were people of color, immigrants and refugees. Our most powerful tool is our culture, which informs how we farm, create, interact, and live. The imposition of Western monoculture, which has accelerated climate change and social inequality, eliminates our tools to fix or slow this global destruction. As a child of refugees from a country that no longer exists, with a culture that will likely die with my generation, I see the urgency in retaining cultural diversity. As a farmer, I see how the farm service system, agricultural policies, and seed monopolies dismiss and push out non-Euro-American, culturally informed practices. The result is a slow cultural eradication, a slow genocide. I'm organizing farmers of color such that we can retain our culture, our tools to fix this food system. I'm organizing so that the sum of our 40 tries amounts to a healthful, equitable world. Thanks for listening to Calag Roots podcast number six. If you liked what you heard, you can check out our other stories at agroots.org. And next month, we'll be releasing another history story, again from the borderlands of the San Joaquin Valley. So stay tuned for that. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher, and it helps us if you subscribe or leave us a review so other people can find us. This story was produced by the California Institute for Rural Studies, and I'm Ildi Carlisle Cummins, director of the Calag Roots Project. Big thanks today to Mai Nguyen, of course, for the wonderful interview. And the Calag Roots theme music is by Nangdo. A huge thanks also go out to Calag Roots funders, including the Food and Farming Communications Fund and the 11th Hour Project.